Are we okay with Tiger Woods now? Because he fucking he, he has a trophy now. What did he do again? I kind of I, when I was reading that, I was like, what did he? I well, forgot I, what he did. I was never. I was personally never against him in the first place. I mean, he cheated on his wife, which that's his business. I don't think it's a quality move, but okay. And if you decide, well, I'm not going to be a fan because he's a, an adulterer. Okay. That's your prerogative as well. That's fine. But that was sort of strike one for a lot of people. Sure. Then he got, he got the Dewey. And I'm not talking about the decimal system. I'm talking about a DUI. And he was loaded up on, I mean, the, the list of what he had had in his blood reads like uh, me crawling for pharmaceuticals on the dark web. It's my browser history. He had like 13 different types of painkillers and sedatives and everything in his There's system. It's still a weird line to draw, though. Because then you're like, did you like Elvis? Did you like James Dean? Like I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Also, the people that point to, well, he got behind the wheel of a car and he was impaired. And that's the it's a terrible thing. It's a shitty decision. Of course, it is all those things. Mm -hmm. He was actually discovered by a cop on the side of the road asleep in his vehicle. He had pulled over. Now, his car had a couple couple dings and scrapes. Like I say, he, uh, he backed into a Wolverine. And uh, was a little messed up, so something happened before he decided to pull over, obviously. That said, it was well documented that he had severe back pain, went through back surgery, and as we know, a ton of people get hooked on painkillers and sure. opiates and whatnot in the wake of something like that. So, you, again, you don't have to forgive the actions, but it's, it's okay if you... if you understand why someone might be in that position, but still, if you decide to not support him because of that, forget the uh, uh, the adultering. Forget that. If you decide to not support him because he got a DUI and was hopped up on painkillers and, and you cut off your support, fine. I totally agree with your right to do that. I violently disagree as I bang this table with your ability to go, no, fuck him, he's dead to me. Wait, it's been a, it's been a couple years. He won again? Hey, Tiger! Come on, buddy! Listen, as long Gather as- Gather for the selfies! I want to tag you on the Instahams! You're pretty good! You're, you're, you're back, baby! I hate that. I hate that shit. As long as we can still give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Right? That's all I care about. He's uh, an American hero, and he deserves a medal. He's free to grab women wherever he wants now, because he's a champion again. It's the, the size and the weight of your trophy these days is directly proportionate to the amount of fucking forgiveness you receive. <laughs> and, the, and the accolades you'll be given by those who wrote you off because you're a terrible person. If you, if you stopped supporting him for any reason along the way, totally fine. If you're suddenly back on Team Tiger because he's holding up a trophy, fuck you. You're terrible. And that's me judging. And is that okay? Well, I just actually saw uh, Jared Fogle won the prison kickball what? tournament. So. Oh, he's a kickball championship? Yeah, so he should win the medal too. Oh, man. I forgive him. It's a big trophy. That's fine. Odd that it's a children's game, but I guess I guess that checks out, yeah, right? So, I mean, that's how he got so good when at it. When it comes to kids and balls, I trust Jared Fogle. Oh, we weren't recording, were we? Uh, we were streaming. Weird how that started. How did we get on were that? Were we actually rolling on that? Yeah. Now we have to decide, does that stay in as the intro to the podcast? I don't know. I don't think I have a, a bed song long <laughs> enough for that or appropriate. Put the sounds of uh, kids at a playground and uh, uh, some golf swings in the background. It'd be right. fine. And here it is. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pointless Podcast. It's me, KP. How the hell are you? We could stop that. It's going to make it really hard to edit, actually, so yeah. I'm going to stop that. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, hi, how are you? The other voice you're hearing is Alex Korea. Hi, Alex. That's me. Alex, you and I do a podcast several times a week. It's called Office Hours. We do it, uh, well, we used to do it on YouTube, but we're banned from that for the moment. But we do it uh, over on Twitch, and if people go to Pointless.Live, they can check it out there, and they can also get the RSS feed to everything. But to do that, oh, they got to pay the toll. Yes, they, it's, they have to give us money. That's how the internet works. You want content, you give us cash. Free cash for content. free, guys. Go to patreon.com slash pointless pod. Again, that's patreon.com slash pointless pod. You can throw a dollar, five, 25 our way. If you're Tiger Woods, give us a comically oversized check and some opiates. We'll accept all forms of payment. The point is, patreon.com slash pointless pod. If you go on over there, you can get the Office Hours podcast. You can get uh, access to our guests and ask questions for the Pointless Podcast. But really, it helps me justify doing this, and I appreciate each and every dollar that you spend. But come hang out and watch us live as well. We're doing that on totally. Twitch. Maybe on YouTube. We'll see if Apple lets us. April 26th is their drop-dead date. Isn't that exciting, Alex? I love it. I fucking hate corporations. Hey, speaking of drugs, I want to talk about my guest today, Evan Ratliff. I thought it was me. I was like... Did you sniff me out? You narking me, bro? Dude, I think you're kind of a square, Alex. Shit, I am. I think I you're mean. kind of a square. I mean, I've done a handful of different drugs with you, and you've navigated some of them very well, very bravely. I don't remember which of, ones those were. That's a bit kind of a bitch. <laughs> well, yeah, well, to, to be fair, Kevin, they've all stemmed from your gung ho idness at nature. We I mean, did it in one of them North is Hollywood. I, one I of can... them is when I handed you a cannon and said, smoke pot out of this, fill the entire thing with smoke, and hit it. You bish. Yes, and I feel like you led me astray there. You didn't accurately represent what, what was going to happen. I put stars on the ceiling. You went full corpse pose, and then a week later, you kind of remembered that it happened. So that's a pleasant experience. Listen, I uh, my trophy scared, speaks for itself. What's been your your scariest, your most scariest drug experience? You legit almost killed us one time in the desert. What? There was a dog. What? There was a search helicopter. What? That, the, the, there was a, a search and rescue team, and there were several uh, planes flying overhead, but that was not to search and rescue us. But it could have been, Kevin. That's the most I've ever felt like I was going to die in my adult life. And? And? Are you not stronger for it? No, I now know that you should have a fucking GPS before you wander That's off stronger. a trail. That's stronger! You have more knowledge now! How did we both learn that at the same time? That's I was not true, 22. I didn't learn that lesson, then I actually had to call search and rescue months later, but that was a different <laughs> thing, and that was not drug-related. We did have a map. We, have, we had a map and we had a compass, but Jeremy, during said hike and his infinite psychedelic wisdom, decided, yeah, fucking maps, who needs that? Rip, rip, rip. Do you remember that? No, I probably repressed oh it. Oh my God, he tore our map up into many little pieces. I mean, he also kicked a cactus into space. He did so. do that, he did. It was a weird physics. It, this is beside the point. The point is, Evan Ratliff. Yes. Drugs. I don't know what he's taken, and whatever he's doing, more power to him because he is an amazing author and an incredible journalist, and he's churning out some insane work. And the the book which we are talking about today is called The Mastermind, and I'm not so patiently trying to unlock my phone so I can give the full title, which I keep screwing up. It's The Mastermind. Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. Blow. We gotta figure out the echo battle. The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal, written uh, by journalist and incredible author Evan Ratliff. We're gonna talk about uh, a hidden world filled with high-tech gangsters and drug kingpins and double-crossers and stone-cold hitmen. 
It's a, a true tale, a fascinating tale about an uber nerd who set up uh, his entire digital operation, uh, which allowed him to fairly anonymously run call centers in multiple companies, uh, prescribe drugs legally in multiple companies, ship tons of opiates and adjacent chemicals and pharmaceuticals into the United States of America. He amassed an empire where he was making millions upon millions of dollars each and every week to the point where he would fly to different countries having teams of hitmen buy real estate for him, uh, launder money into actual bars of gold, <laughs> set up uh, entire fishing operations to launder said money, would have many different children in many different countries to make extraditing him more difficult. The guy was quite a mastermind, and you're gonna learn all about his operation, uh, his rise to fame and power, his eventual fall, spoilers, and what that turned into, because this thing, this story has twists and turns, and we talk about it for an hour and change, but as I say many times throughout the podcast, and I'll say it here in the intro, uh, despite all the light we shed on everything, uh, we're only illuminating the scratch on the surface. There's a ton here. Again, the book is called The Mastermind. Uh, it's drugs, empire, murder, betrayal. Uh, I, I started reading the book. I switched to the audiobook, which Evan narrates himself. It's wonderful. We're going to talk all about it. You're going to hear it. Am I missing anything, Alex, before we get to it? I don't think so. You nailed it. Should we plug Sherry's Berries or Squarespace? Yeah, we actually have an ad. It's for... Woo! Hit him with it. Hit him with it. Uh, a Ford Yukon. You can run through... You can take a bunch of opiates, run through a farmer's market, maybe a playground, and then win the Masters tournament 12 years later. All is forgiven. Enjoy this episode of the Pointless Podcast with Sir Evan Ratliff. You? Yes. Good. Evan, are you, uh, do you need a second? No, I'm good. All right. All right. Well, hello there, boys, girls, and in-betweeners. Welcome to yet another episode of the Pointless Podcast. My guest today is Sir Evan Ratliff, author of The uh, Mastermind. And now I'm forgetting what is the subtitle to the thing, because it's like sex, drugs, murder, more <laughs> murder, more sex, pills, sweet, yes, daddy. Isn't that the full title? Is that you, got mo you got most of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Evan, thank you for making the time to sit down, man. I really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, happy to be here. Your latest is an incredible story uh, that does have all those things. The Venn diagrams line up very well when it comes to sex, to murder, to hacking, uh, encryption. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of everything rolled into one, and I cannot believe that it's true. Uh, so let's maybe take a step back before we dive into that. Uh, and tell me how you ended up in this position that where the other Venn diagram that is uh, maybe technology and crime, where they intersect, that's where you're nestled all warm and snug like. How did that yeah, happen? Yeah, that's, that's where I live. How did you carve uh, out this line? Well, I started off mostly on the tech side of things. So I, I worked at Wired Magazine when I first started out my career um, for a few years, and I was a fact checker there and ran the research desk at the magazine. And then I started writing. And when I left, I did a lot of science writing. I did a lot of technology writing for years. And then I kind of stumbled into a few crime stories, like scammers, uh, original like distributed denial of service attacks mm -hmm. was something that I was uh, looking into kind of early on when no one was really talking about it that much. Was uh, that the, the New Yorker article with the zombies? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of my route to get out of just writing about technology and, and doing things like profiling CEOs or, you know, writing about the next big thing was I started finding these sort of intersections of technology and crime. And then I 
my sort of eventually just fell down the hole of uh, that ended up being my life for now a long time. You're like, let's go full crime. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I want to I want to see what happens when AKs are being shot near sharks and people's lives are being threatened. Which exactly. <laughs> yeah. What is the what is the outer limit of this of so, this world? So how did you first stumble into the world that is is Paul LaRue? Did were you trying to order some, you know, generic uh, ED pills online and then you're like, "Wait, where is this coming from?" The original uh, place that I encountered it was there was a guy so to step back a second, you know, Paul LaRue sort of was someone who started his own kind of criminal cartel. And we could talk about the ins and outs of that. But there was a guy who worked for him named Joseph Hunter, and his nickname was Rambo. And he was arrested. He was a former U.S. Army sniper instructor. He had been in the Army for a long time, gotten out, become a security contractor. And he was arrested in Thailand by the DEA in 2013. And he and a crew of people were accused of plotting a hit against a DE agent. It was all a sting operation, but they were supposedly going to kill this DE agent and a snitch from a drug cartel. And it was this big case. It was in, it was on CNN. There was a big press conference. Um, and then there was another case a few weeks later that was announced, which was five guys being arrested in, in Thailand and other places for smuggling meth out of North Korea. And there were these two cases that were so extraordinary and bizarre in a variety of ways, but also there was a lot of secrecy around them. And I sort of sussed out that they were connected in some way, mm -hmm. but I couldn't exactly figure out how they were connected. And you could kind of tell from the documents that were available that they were. So I kind of started scraping at it a little bit and I did for a year basically. And then the name Paul LaRue was actually leaked by someone at the DEA to the New York Times. And Paul LaRue was the person who connected these cases. And that's when I started really digging into the case. And that was to end of 2014. So I was pretty much nonstop uh, obsessed with it since then. And part of my ignorance on the process of doing this, when you say like you, you start to scratch at that surface, not knowing if it's the tip of an iceberg or just an ice cube, are you scratching multiple stories at the same time? And or are you hedging your bets and going, no, this is it. I'm going to start diving into this. No, for that first year, it was more, I, I mean, I was actually working full-time. I was running a magazine called The Atavist Magazine, right? And uh, which I co-founded. And so I was working full-time, and then I was kind of making some calls periodically. So you, you tend to have several stories going at once at some sort of low level to try to figure out, is there something there? Mm -hmm. Is someone else doing it? So I was calling some lawyers. I was digging up all the paperwork that I could in terms of documents that were available from, you know, the federal court system. Uh, and so I had a kind of like small pile of research, but I couldn't really make sense of it in that first year, partly because no one would talk about it. I mean, typically when people are arrested and they get defense attorneys, whether they're paying for them or appointed, you can get those defense attorneys to talk to you at least on background about what's going on in the case. And they'll say, oh, my guy didn't do it for this reason or that reason. Oftentimes they'll speak up publicly because they feel like that helps them. And this was very strange. I mean, no one, no one would talk about it. People would hang up on me. People would say, you know, one guy said, I said, I'm looking into, I know there's an individual one kind of character who connects these two cases. Mm -hmm. And the guy said something like, oh, you mean Kaiser Soze? And then he basically hung up on me. And I was sort of like, okay, well, there's something. But it's very difficult to tell what it is because no one will talk about it. So it really was a year of frustration and not putting much 
full on effort into it because I just didn't think I could get anywhere. And then, I mean, it, it, I give full credit to Alan Foyer, who's the reporter at the New York Times. Like he's the one who dug out the name that I couldn't get. Right. And then I kind of took it and ran with it from there. So the name pops up. That is the the switch that gets flipped. And now you're running full speed ahead. And did you have any idea what kind of fog of war you were sprinting into that it would lead down so many roads and lead you on an international journey, speaking with drug dealers and murderers and... <laughs> I did not. I, I thought it would be a really good magazine story, yeah. is what I thought. I mean, it had all the elements of a really good magazine story. And I thought, okay, if I can get enough pieces of this, I can tell it in a, you know... 5,000 word form, which would be kind of medium length feature in a magazine. And then it was really sort of once I took the first couple trips, when I actually hit the ground, in, particularly in the Philippines, when it just seemed like, wow, this, this thing is so much bigger than I imagined it could be. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of an endless number of people to talk to. I mean, there were thousands of people who had worked for Paul LaRue. And once I started finding them, it's sort of like I couldn't stop. And they all had just stories that were hard to believe. Like until I could triangulate them with other people, I just could not believe some of the things that people were telling me. And normally I would say, like, I don't want to spoil any chapters here, but I feel like we could have a seven hour conversation about some of those stories and we would only spoil maybe 3% of them because the man was prolific, if I may use one word to describe him. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of many adjectives, but um, uh, can you paint a picture for those who have no idea who Paul LaRue is, what his operation was, who is this guy and what was he doing? So he was a computer programmer by profession. So he, he grew up in Zimbabwe at the time it was Rhodesia in, he was born in 1972. And then he grew up part, partly in, in Zimbabwe and then partly in South Africa. And then he left home relatively young to kind of make his way as a programmer because he had gotten into computers when he was a teenager. And this sort of arc of his life follows a lot of the stories that you hear about founders of tech companies. You know, as a teenager, he sort of found himself in technology, in computers, was largely self-taught when it came to programming. And so he left home. He worked as a programmer in a variety of places in London and then Australia. And then he got into designing encryption software, designed the basis of a very famous piece of encryption software called TrueCrypt. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, he decided that he had not made enough money off of his software. He'd kind of gotten ripped off. He'd given it away for free. And so he wanted to make a lot of money. And to do that, he got into online pharmaceuticals. So and to, from there, to paint a picture of how how gifted he was as a coder, his that that true crypt software, or was it E4M was another one, or E4M was what he he wrote a software called, piece of software called Encryption for the Masses, right? And that was an open source piece of software. It was given away for free. Uh, he was very frustrated by that. And then TrueCrypt was basically the the uh, child of E4M. It was built off of E4M, mm-hmm. and it was built by anonymous programmers, so no one really knows who built. TrueCrypt, and it may or may not have actually been Paul LaRue himself. Right, but it's believed that maybe he had some tendrils in there as well. But the the, the, yes. the this software, at least the E4M, was at, at that moment in time uh, when it was released and it was open source. It was kind of like the gold standard for encryption, right? Yes, absolutely. For for encrypting disks, so you know your hard drives on your computers, it was absolutely a step forward. And then you know TrueCrypt was used for a decade as more over a decade as the best software. If you want to hide what's on your laptop, what's on your desktop from prying eyes, whoever they may be, 
you would use that software. And you know, lately now, when you buy a Mac laptop or a, or a Microsoft a Windows laptop, they have their own encryption on it, and it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But that didn't exist for all of those years. So really, if you wanted to do that, if you needed to keep secrets, you use those pieces of software. All right. So this guy, you know, so Paul Larue, to, to to hide a thumb drive from your roommate, that's one thing. To hide data from the NSA, you go with his software at that slice of time. So he was, yes. he was that good and gifted of a coder. But as you said, he wasn't uh, seeing enough upside from it. He wasn't making enough money, so he turned to online pharmaceuticals. Yes. So he started in 2004, he started this network of online pharmaceuticals, uh, which generally went by the name RX Limited. And the, the sort of scheme of it, the, the network part of it was genius, which was that he, he wanted to sell drugs into the U.S. And instead of, you know, setting up some manufacturing process or buying them overseas and shipping them to the U.S., he recruited American doctors and American pharmacists to be part of the network. So a U.S. doctor would get a survey that someone had filled out, a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So I, if I wanted to buy drugs, I go to a website, I fill out a questionnaire about my symptoms, and then that questionnaire goes to a doctor who writes a real prescription. That real prescription goes to a generally small-town pharmacist who was trying to compete against big-box stores, and the pharmacist issues the prescription, fills it, uh, puts it in a FedEx envelope that's paid for by RX Limited. So... RX Limited is operating, by this time, LaRue had moved to the Philippines. So he's operating out of the Philippines. All of the distribution of the drugs is happening within the U.S. Right. And the only things crossing the border are, you know, virtual. So and by And brilliant doing to that, think of how siloed that operation is, that the, 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 the client or the patient, in my case, is someone who, let's say, wants to buy Provigil online without a prescription, go to a website, fill out the questionnaire, I'm a little sleepy, I'd like some more energy, that gets funneled then to that doctor. The doctor sees it and goes, yeah, okay, this checks out. I guess that's telemedicine, right? That, that's legal or legal-ish at the time. They approve well, it. Yeah. That gets gold stamped. That gets sent to a pharmacy. And as you said, that mom and pop is like, I can't compete with the CVSs of the world. But if I fill this, there's a couple bucks there. There's a percentage. I get it my cut. Okay, I'm doing my job. I think I'm doing the right thing legally. I got the prescription. The doctor thinks they're doing the right thing legally. Me as the patient, I think I really want slash need these pharmaceuticals. So all along the chain, no one really knows. They're so siloed in their own little lane. And yet Paul LaRue has put together every piece of that operation, including the shipping. Yeah, exactly. Including the shipping, paying for the <laughs> FedEx account, including sending them computers. If they needed a computer, he would send them a computer already outfitted with the software that they needed to download the orders and deal with the orders. And the other aspect of it that was pretty brilliant was that they were mostly selling painkillers. I mean, they sold all sorts of things. You could mm -hmm. buy all sorts of drugs, but they were primarily dealing in painkillers. But they picked three painkillers that were not controlled substances. So they they were not, one of them was an opioid, synthetic opioid, but they were not Oxycontin. They were not Percocet. They were not drugs that you generally hear about when it comes to the opioid crisis and right. addiction. They were, you know, Tramadol uh, and Ultra and, and Fioracet and Soma, which are, they are addictive and they are painkillers in a variety of ways, but they were just much more under the radar. They weren't the Schedule DEA. One at the time, right? So exactly. even though there they were was not all scheduled this, at all, even though there's all this questionable murkiness about everything that they're doing, they really reduced their risk profile by saying, "Hey, listen, there's nothing illegal about these particular prescriptions that we're pushing." Yeah. Wow. And so, so then, I mean, by the late, you know, late aughts, he's making hundreds of millions of dollars on this. I mean, they're doing, you know 
tens of millions of doses, uh, you know, over a period of six months are being distributed. So it, it becomes a huge, huge operation. And he's got call centers in the Philippines and in Israel that are just handling, you know, customer service like you would if you were any online retailer. You've got people whose credit cards get declined or the 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 order goes missing right. or and then he's got marketing operations where if if someone's ordered and they stop ordering they get a call saying hey do you need any more of these <laughs> and so it's really operating like a like an online retailer and, and even though it was incredibly successful you know you'd mentioned rx limited but this was thousands of different domains and different designs and different everything that would kind of funnel back into their systems right yeah so they would have uh what they call affiliates marketing affiliates so they would have you know, people who could set up a website and they could get the templates from RX Limited, set up a website, take orders, and then get a cut if their order was filled down the line. So again, it's sort of outsourcing the contractors part of the labor of advertising for customers who want these certain drugs, doing the drugs. And then in the back end, it's all Paul LaRue. He's he's the guy who's controlling the the behind the scenes. And then he did another, I mean, not to get too deep into the technical aspect of it, but I mean, his other incredible move was that he set up his own domain registrar in the Philippines, which means that he could create his own domains and there was no way to stop him. It was officially approved. You couldn't buy a domain from him, but he had a company called AB Systems where if if something got taken down, if, you know, uh, yourpills.com got taken down, he could do yourpills.com one yourpills.com 1A, B, C, like he just do random strings and generate hundreds of them a day. So it was sort of like uh, the tentacles of it, you could lop them off, but then three would grow right in their place. And same things, I I love getting into the digital weeds on this one because same thing with email servers, right? He ran his own, he ran his complete, so he was in control of every aspect of the operation uh, running off his own hardware, his own software, his own everything. Yeah, he had his own (laughs) encrypted email servers, which he designed himself which were to the very end impenetrable by law enforcement. They could not get access to those communications. Now, unfortunately for him, some of his uh, underlings were not that technically proficient and they right. would use commercial email. So the, the authorities were still able to get access to stuff. Even Paul Rue himself at the beginning used commercial email. So you know he definitely made some mistakes along the way before he figured out how to insulate himself more and more over time. Right. It's funny. I'm watching chat scroll and, and in real time, they're saying like, hey, I, I bought some stuff online around that time. Hey, I bought some travel. Oh, my God, I probably bought drugs from this guy. And there's a good <laughs> chance that in a several year period, if you did get some Soma or some tramadol online, it probably was filtered through his tendrils. Yeah. I mean, at one point, there was an estimate that 50 percent, half of the rogue online pharmacies, sort of like unapproved online pharmacies, were actually Paul LaRue around that time. So yeah, you probably, people probably did. But the thing about the network was, you did always get what you ordered. It mm-hmm. wasn't fraud. Like you didn't get some other drug or fake drugs or sugar pills or whatever. I mean, you were getting real drugs from a pharmacist in the United States. So that's one of the funny things about it. Like some people really needed the drugs and got exactly what they wanted. Some people were addicted. You know, there was a whole range of who the customers were. So there's a point in time that you mentioned where he's got the call centers humming, he's got distribution, he's got customer support, he's got aggressive emailer campaigns, and he's probably pulling in millions and millions of dollars each week. What what happened with Paul where he decided this isn't enough? Is it the classic tale of greed? Uh, what, what what, What switched and when did he start getting into arms dealing or <laughs> to, uh, to, to it, crazy real estate all in different areas where he needed to have kids. Like, I mean, this thing takes a thousand twists and turns. What, what, what happened? 
Well, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the big questions of, of Paul LaRue and of the whole organization. I mean, the organization was him and he was the organization, mm -hmm. but you know, he was making so much money, you know, why did he not just either keep doing that or, you know, retire and just uh, live out his life with as much money as he could ever spend. And part of it, I think is just, I, I actually look to, you know, successful tech startups and sort of like the reporting that I used to do a little bit more about Silicon Valley to the answer to this, which is, you know, there is a classic kind of crime thing where it's just, it's just greed and someone just gets caught up in the life and, you know, they can't stop and they can't find a way out. And I think there was a little bit of that, but also if you look at Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or someone that gets on pictured on the cover of magazines celebrated for their success, you know, you say you could say the same things. So you say, why doesn't Mark Zuckerberg just retire? He's got more money he could ever spend. Like, why does Facebook need to be more successful? Why is Elon Musk launching rockets and building tunnels and building electric cars? And there's a sort of drive to success that cannot be satisfied by even financial success. And Paul Leroux definitely did want to make huge amounts of money. He would say to people, I want to fill rooms with boxes of cash. And he did literally fill rooms with boxes of cash. So there was definitely that element of it. But I think there was also a desire to just be the biggest, to be the most successful. And when he looked at it, when he looked at going into sort of straight businesses or straight investments mm -hmm. with the money, all the money he had, the returns on it just aren't as good. The returns on arms dealing and cocaine dealing and methamphetamine dealing are thousands of percents. <laughs> and the returns on real estate are, you know, 50% would be credible. Preaching you know, to the so. choir. I've been screaming <laughs> at my Chase Bake representative for the last five years. I'm like, get me a North Korean methamphetamine. Let's exactly. go. Exactly. If, if they had a mutual fund, <laughs> just get right into it. So now as you're, uh, as you're uh, you know, pinning the twine up on the pictures on the wall and you're unraveling the story, where is it taking you in your travels? And at what point are you sitting across the table from um, maybe ex-military uh, who are now contract killers by any other name. Uh, when are those chats happening? And at what point are you concerned for your safety? Did that ever happen as you were researching this and diving down this rabbit hole? Um, a little bit. I mean, I started, so the main business, he, you know, he was operating out of the Philippines. So a lot of the reporting was in the Philippines, his mercenary team. So as he got into other types of crime, he started utilizing ex-military guys who were in the security contracting world, Americans, Israelis, South Africans, Brits, and they sort of formed kind of teams under him to do a variety of projects all over the world, which included things like gold smuggling, but also included, you know, protection, which eventually bled into, so to speak, into yeah. intimidation, which eventually turned into murder. So... He found these guys, you know, in the Philippines, there are a lot of people floating around in the security contracting world. It's a pretty good place to base yourself. It's not very expensive. Uh, and you can get gigs there both locally. And a lot of these guys were working in Iraq and Afghanistan at the height of those wars. And so when I started reporting, you know, I was surprised to discover that there were a lot of people who had worked for LaRue or at least a handful of the mercenary type people who were just in the Philippines. And if I could find them, they would talk. You know, sometimes they would talk anonymously, you know, not for attribution to their name. And sometimes they would just talk. And mostly they had lived within this organization, no matter what they'd done, and not really known anything about the broader Paul LaRue organization and design because they were all kept in their own little lanes. 
And so oftentimes they were as interested in finding out what I knew as I was in finding out what they knew. And in a way, this is a long-winded answer to your question about feeling unsafe. Sure. Like I never really felt unsafe sitting across from someone. I mean, they would say things like, I could have had you killed if I'd wanted to. And, you know, it cost me, you know, 10 bucks to go and a bag of methamphetamine to go get a guy to come kill you, which is like not untrue. But I never felt like they had the incentive. I think the right. place where I was most concerned was probably more on the on the authority side in the Philippines, just because Paul LaRue had bribed his way up and down the chain of command in a variety of of you know, the police and the military and the drug enforcement agency and the, their equivalent of the FBI. And so you just didn't really know who was part of that and who might think, oh, he's coming to write about the fact that I took a bribe. Right. Um, and so that, that was a little more concerning. And the only really sort of frightening moment was when myself and the local reporter that was helping me that I was working with, we got pulled over by a cop who just appeared out of nowhere in a very remote area where we were, we had been trying to get an interview and it turned out that cop just wanted a bribe. It was just like everyday corruption. They just wanted a, but it was, there was a moment where we thought, okay, uh, we've driven into serious trouble. And that was kind of the culmination of, you know, some paranoia about who, who when you're just overturning these rocks, like you just don't know Right. What when, people's when, experience was. <laughs> when you can throw a stone and a contract killer comes out of the weeds to say, yeah, I know that guy. What, you know, what about it? Where's that bag yeah. of meth? Yeah, I understand yeah. why you'd be a little concerned and the shoulders would be at, at earlobe height. Uh, yeah. Of course. Yeah, That's so bit. fascinating to hear that these guys, because Paul, it, you can call him a lot of things, but is it fair to say genius in part? that Because I, I feel like the, the genius part of his operation was that siloing where folks at a call center had no idea what type of operation they were really working for. They were just showing up, doing their damn job, trying to keep food on the table, working for a call center. Oddly enough, these contract killers, or, or let's say a private security detail, they were sort of acting the same way. They knew that there was a, an individual number one that they were protecting or maybe sussing out real estate for, or maybe laundering some money or changing some gold bars for, but they had no idea the extent of the entire operation as well. Yeah, I mean, that part of it was was certainly very clever. I think there were drawbacks to that in that he never really trusted anyone with the real day to day of the operation. So, you know, he hardly ever slept. He directed everything from his laptop and he could contact you at any time of day out of nowhere. And he wanted to know what was going on in every single project. And he's got dozens of projects running at the same time. Crazy, disparate projects, gold, timber money laundering. Uh, he had a whole thing in Somalia. Right. There was a fishing operation at one point too, right? Or they was... Yeah, that was, I mean, Somalia was, was originally, he kind of sold it to the guy who ran it as a tuna fishing operation. Right. And there were, there were actually like, it's not a bad idea. And uh, there were sort of like legitimate money to be made on this operation, but you know, they hired a whole militia to protect it. And it kind of morphed over time into a place where they were going to uh, collect arms and sell them and grow drugs and have their own little kind of fiefdom. So, but he would be checking in on that constantly. And it was just, it was almost too much for one person to possibly manage. There was just, there was no delegation at the highest right. levels from like a, I don't know, executive management <laughs> point of view. So in the undercover boss uh, version of this story, he's going to have some feedback for himself that he needs to delegate more and be trusting to the employees further down the ladder. I get it. I get it. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, uh, that's what I heard from the employees. I mean, that was part of what they wanted to tell me was, you know, uh, his operational sense was shit because he never, <laughs> 
he never delegated to me. Like they were mad about it and they, they, they had never had anyone to talk to. That's amazing. And, so and bagel Thursdays. Would it kill you to bring in some damn bagels? I mean, we literally <laughs> have blood on our hands. Where's the schmear? <laughs> I like that that's their gripes. So at, the, at, at Paul LaRue's height then, um, what is it? Because you mentioned it was several different projects spread across all these different things, the lumber, the real estate, the this. How much money was he actually pulling in? Is there any way to know? No, no one knows. I mean, he he claimed in court that he had, I think, made two hundred fifty or three hundred fifty million dollars total over the course of his time. Uh, most of the law enforcement people who worked on the case do not believe that. Um, in fact, some of them believe that he was making two hundred fifty million dollars a year uh, at certain points. Um, partly because you know there's no way to audit it. The money was moving all over the place. Um, no one really had a window into it except him. And there's maybe one other guy who's been, since he's been on the lam, no one can find him for many, many years. Um, he, maybe he knows. But there were also so many things going at once. So he might have a, have a $20 million drug deal going and then a $10 million arms deal. And then, you know, they're, they're just all happening at the same time. There's just m money moving all over the place. So the total numbers, I mean, definitely I met people who worked for him who said he was a billionaire. He was absolutely a billionaire. And then other people who said, Ah, uh, no, he always, he, 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 maybe he was like, always had a couple hundred million around, but that was it. So somewhere in that range, it lies the truth. And when you say uh, arms deal, it's not like I got a bag of guns and silencers that maybe someone on the corner is going to want. Like at, at his height, it was international arms trade where if you, if you wanted RPGs and potentially tanks, he could get his hands on it. Oh yeah. He was dealing in, in heavy weapons. I mean, for his Somali operation, they were bringing in you know, basically like surface to air kind of, not missiles, but like, you know, anti-aircraft guns. Like they mounted this huge anti-aircraft gun on the back of a truck for reasons that weren't entirely clear to me. Um, and yeah, RPGs, uh, explosives. I mean, he was, he was caught with like 20 tons of ammonium nitrate. At one point he was shipping huge shipments of assault rifles. And then the, I mean, the biggest thing was that he was trying to sell arms to Iran. So he had developed a explosives formula, which he sold to Iran. And then he was trying to develop guidance systems for missiles, which he was going to sell to Iran. And he kind of, he had a contact there and there was supposedly a deal. So yeah, I mean, he was operating at sort of like the highest level of that as well. I can't, I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm hearing all, I mean, like I, I, I got through the story, which it's so, uh, the, the, the fact that you were able to tie in so many characters with so much rich history, individually, you could probably write a book on any of the, the folks in Mastermind, but you did such a brilliant job of weaving that entire tale together. And uh, I got mad at myself while I was reading and then in some parts listening to it. Uh, and I'm getting mad at myself again while I'm hearing you retell it because part of me gets excited as I hear about the levels to which Paul LaRue was able to orchestrate this empire. And I have to keep in mind that He's not, he's not a good guy, right? Why, why, what yeah. is it, what is it? I'm asking you to psychoanalyze me now, please. No, no, I know it? what you're saying. Because, like, is there, is there a part of you that, like, at, at some point stood back almost in awe of what he was able to build? Because even some of, like, the, the DEA agents say, like, he was the smartest or most capable guy I've ever tracked. Like, I feel like there was a piece of them that was almost, ex not, maybe not excited, but was almost just in awe of what he was able to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, they have those moments too. You know, there's a there's a DA investigator named Kimberly Brill who works out of Minneapolis, and she 
was tracking him for years, years and years. Like she's probably the single person most responsible for, for gathering the most amount of information about him. And she describes getting to sit down across from him eventually. And it's sort of like the two people who know the most about a thing that's an incredible thing, mm -hmm. talking about it and how that feels. And, you know, to a, to a lesser extent, I had sort of the same experience, which is it is incredible. I mean, what he built is incredible. And every time you turn around, there's something new and it's hard to believe. And it's sort of like, you know, it's out of a movie, like even the guys who worked for him would say, you know, that's the analogy. Those are the analogies that they would use. But then at the same time, I mean, a big part of the book is a thing that I got very interested in, in the beginning was one of the murders that was committed in the in the Philippines, which was a real estate agent named Catherine Lee. Right. And you know, when you ground it in an actual victim who was really essentially an innocent victim, I mean, he thought that she stole from him, but it's- He thought most, that about a lot of people, right? He, he thought that about a lot of people. Yeah, a, a gentle breeze could hit his ear and he would think, yeah, I have to assassinate the trees. We have to deforest this area because they're conspiring. Yeah, he had, I mean, he had someone on his hit list who owed him $1,000. I mean, this is a man who's making at least hundreds of millions of dollars. And he had someone scheduled to be killed who owed him $1,000. So, you know, I felt like it was good to sort of keep returning to that part of the story right. to not get caught up in, uh, oh, he's incredible. He's a genius. I mean, that's all That's all true. I mean, the book's called The Mastermind. There's no right. question that I think it's fascinating what he did. But ultimately, I mean, I say in the book, like, he, he's a monster for the way that he treated humanity, mm -hmm. uh, setting aside what he you know built right now uh i don't i don't I've, I've, i want to be very careful to not spoil things even though i'm obviously we're <laughs> telling we're telling a lot of it but there's so much more there there's it's such it's such a well seasoned uh read but i want to get to the point where he he does in fact yeah spoiler get caught uh you know that's and that's that's, I was, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's like on the back cover of the book. I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty well known, but like, but what's fascinating is that then, then it turns into, uh, cause you're following, you're following so many experts along the way who are piecing things together and trying to track him down. And then once they finally get him, you imagine that this is going to be ticker tape parade day. Uh, they're going to make a meal out of him. They're going to throw all sorts of books at him. And there's an unexpected turn where you see a lot of infighting. Uh, you see potential mismanagement of resources. You see uh, leaks and lies all over the place. And I, I, I was I was waiting for that sense of justice, and I still don't feel like I have it. What happened? <laughs> well, this is where there's a lot of dispute. You know, everything up to that point, everyone can sort of agree on. Yeah. But I think from the point that they caught him, in fact, immediately after they caught him, so they caught him in Liberia, and they put him on a plane back, and he basically en route back says what can I tell you? I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. So uh, how can I help you? Yeah. And like, Sir, the plane hasn't taken off yet. You're the easiest <laughs> flip ever. Just get your seatbelt on. We'll serve you the drink and then we can talk about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, truly, I think that, you know, I talked to one of the people who was on the plane who was sort of like, we were ready to go to bed. I mean, they'd been running this operation for days to catch him. Then they catch him and they're like, okay, now we're going to sleep all the way home. And he's ready. He was ready to talk. And so basically from the time he hit the ground the next day in the U.S., he's doing proffer sessions, which are, you know, he's he's telling them what he can offer them. And they're starting to build new sting operations around him. So what they decided to do, essentially, shorthand is give him a deal. So right. give him a deal. He could uh, plead to certain things and not to other things. 
and then he would help them. And they really used him as an operative. So they pretended like he wasn't, had not been arrested because he often went dark for periods of time. So his employees, you know, some of them were a little suspicious, but uh, he was able to assuage that suspicion. And then he was able to run, help them run these operations, which set up the people who worked for him Mm -hmm. uh, to be arrested. So that's how Joseph Hunter my original entry point into the story, that's how he got caught was they set up a whole sting operation and he's hearing from Paul LaRue and Paul LaRue saying, my new Colombian partners want this guy killed. And he's saying, okay, you know, you pay me, I'll do it. And that's, that's where he got nailed. But then it's so fat. They have the, I just, I'm sorry. I'm just like, even hearing it again, it's like they have the head of the totem pole. Why are they using him to go further down into the soil? Like, is there something that everybody's missing? Was there something else going on? Was this about larger international crime organizations? Because it felt like at every turn, it was just busting the people that he put in the position to commit crime. He enabled them. Yeah, well, I'll tell you the argument. I mean, please, so there's sort of two, there's sort of two reasons behind that. I mean, one is that there were international geopolitical things that they wanted a piece of. So Iran and North Korea, you know, they thought, and he suggested to them that he had entry points into those countries. Those countries are of great interest to the United States. He was busting the arms embargo against Iran or the general embargo against Iran. Um, So, but the problem with that was that they never really got anywhere. Um, As far as I could report out, they never got anywhere with those things. I mean, they could not get into... The Chinese triads, which was what was leading him into North Korea, that's where his drugs, that was the, the sort of go-between. And they just, they couldn't get those people to go re-infiltrate those, those networks. Mm-hmm. And then in Iran, it just, it just died. Like they couldn't send anyone in there. They couldn't get any intelligence. So that was part of it. And then I think they would argue, the people who were in favor of getting, giving him a deal, they would argue there were all these guys, that mercenaries that he hired as killers who were floating around the world you know, just out there ready to kill again. And so we used him to roll up those people. Now, the counter argument to that is those people only ever killed for Paul LaRue, as far as we know. So it isn't clear that they were out killing for other people. They were, one guy was homeless. Like he was like, they didn't really have anything else to do. And it wasn't like there was another Paul LaRue boss sitting out there waiting to hire them that they could find. So, you know, you could look at it either way. And it really depends on what sentence Paul Rue himself gets mm-hmm. whether or not they made a good deal. So where where are we at today with Paul? Is he still in this nebulous? Is he going to receive? I mean, he's been in prison for a minute now as he's been their yeah. informant. Is he is he getting out soon? Is he, has he received a sentence? No, he hasn't received a sentence. So he's been in jail. He was arrested in September 2012. So he's been in, you know, going on seven years this year. And then his sentencing actually just got scheduled for uh, July 23rd, I think. Um, so it's been delayed a couple of times, so it might get delayed again, but mm-hmm. you know, that sentencing will determine how long he's going to spend in at least American prison. He's done seven years. So, and the range on guidelines range for him is 10 to life for the things that he did, you know, take a plea on. So pretty, that's a pretty wide window. <laughs> it's a very wide, there's a yeah. lot of latitude. There's a lot of question of what will the prosecutors say? Cause they, they file a letter saying this. This person cooperated. Here's what they provided. Here's how important it is. So they can they can say his cooperation was very important. They can say it turned out to not be as important. You know, they can they can skew it in a direction that will you know push the judge one way or the other. But ultimately, it's just up to the judge. So uh, it's really unknown at this point. Do you think as we have this discussion? I mean, clearly there are still 
plenty of websites where you can go and get pharmaceuticals. Um, there's, you know, there's the deep and the darkest web where you could go and probably get whatever firearms you need and maybe get yourself one of those contract killings if you got the bag of meth or whatever it is they're trading for these days, probably some Ethereum. Do you think that as we're having this conversation, there's someone pulling strings and orchestrating something on the level that Paul LaRue did? Or was he, was he sort of one in a million? Was he like only in that, only in that period, only in that moment? I think... In terms of the how prolific he was at sort of successful at a wide range and and in so many countries and doing so much at the same time, I think he was pretty singular. I mean, I think he's singular in the history of crime, really, mm-hmm. in terms of being able to pull all that off and also to be technically minded in yeah. how he did it. Um, so I don't think there's another Paul LaRue right now, although if there was by we wouldn't know. We wouldn't until know until a surfaced. decade later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think, I mean, he represents, I think, trends that will just continue to accelerate in the same way that all of our lives are affected by digital technology in all these ways. And we spend all that time, you know, inside of our phones and, and our computers. I mean, the same thing is happening in an accelerated fashion on the other side of the law. So I think he represents there will be people like him who cross over from the world of cybercrime into the world of sort of real flesh and blood crime uh, increasingly. I don't know if any of them will do it at the magnitude that he was able to do it. Mm-hmm. Where Where is the best way to get drugs online right now? I'm just asking for, I mean, someone in chat just asked it. Do you happen to know, is it a .net? Is it a .chocolate? What's the domain? I don't know. It's tough right now. I mean, well, there was a whole story in the New York Times this morning about legitimate startups like Uber for prescription pills mm-hmm. that are doing like ED drugs and and they are they are like Silicon Valley style startups, totally, you know, legal. Right. Regulators aren't paying attention to them. They're following they are following the Paul LaRue model. Like the thing that the DEA spent almost 10 years trying to dismantle is now like a hot Silicon Valley startup. So it is crazy the way that it's changing. Um, they're just going to make course, sure that some politician gets uh, gets some lobby funds or whatever else. They're going to make sure that someone's beak is wet enough so that they're not shut down. Probably that will be the difference. Yeah, maybe so. If they can if they can push far enough into the legitimate side, I mean, the same way Uber did. Uber, you know, broke all the rules as they were pushing into new cities. And, right. You know, if if these companies can successfully get the right people on their side, then Paul Larue may be sitting in prison saying, you know, what the hell? I. I what I was doing is now completely legal. I get, yeah, there's a, there's a near future where Paul LaRue's on Shark Tank pitching to Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> Sharks, I have the greatest thing. It's going to be your newest addiction. Literally and figuratively, let's go make some money. That's so true. There's a million telemedicine sites now, and I hear podcast ads for them where you can go and sign up and click the questionnaire, and whether it's you want to regenerate some hair uh, or you want to get harder down there, whatever it is, They've got it now, and there's no awkward waiting room visits and whatever the copy is saying. It, it, it's true. It's 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 using the telemedicine loopholes that he was um, implying years ago. Yeah, and there was a doctor. So in the book, there's a doctor that I spent all the time with uh, who was, he was, they prosecuted him in Minnesota for being part of the network. And he had all these emails back and forth between him and RX Limited. He didn't know who ran RX Limited. He had no idea. He'd never mm-hmm. heard of Paul LaRue. It was just some faceless people who... He found online and he signed up for this thing and he was started making a bunch of money doing these prescriptions. But he had emailed them saying, you should add, you know, video chat because uh, then I could really talk to the patients. And he really thought of it at, at certain points as this kind of like future of telemedicine. 
And then when they tried to prosecute him, he got acquitted because they couldn't show that he knew that it was illegal. Right. And his argument when I met with him was, look around. This is a billion dollar business. And I just thought I was part of the leading edge of it. Now, there's a little bit of question about that because at one point he was filling, you know, a thousand painkiller prescriptions a day. Right. They so, added the accept all checkbox to the software. And he was like, that one's yeah. easy to click. And then my, uh, my, my lease payment goes away as well. This is awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, there, I mean, but but to no. your point, he did. He, I I recall his 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 storyline quite a bit, and it was yeah. He he really felt like look, telemedicine is the thing. Let's push for this. And he was also emailing constantly, going, "Hey, just to make sure this is in fact legal, right?" Which is always an interesting question to ask of somebody and take the reply as the word of God. <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah, it is in fact legal. Great, I'm doing nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, for one of the guys, sometimes they would have they would be, they, if they asked, they would say especially this like older pharmacist in Wisconsin, they would say, oh, well, you can call this former DEA agent down in Florida and he'll tell you all about it. And they would just give him some number. And it was just some guy on the other end of the line would say, yes, I used to work at the DEA. What you're doing is totally legitimate. <laughs> and it was just like, if you want, whatever you want to hear, you, know, yeah. you can hear. Thanks, Donald, real man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for giving me the nod. Um, so after this process, after this, the book is done, the audio book is done, it's all out there. What happens to you, Evan? Do you go into a refractory period? Do you curl up into a, a deprivation tank for a year or do you immediately leap into your next, your next tale? Well, I would like to immediately leap into it. It's hard. I think I'm a victim of how big this story was in that everything I look at sort of seems small, even though it's, you know, the scope of things don't, the scope of something doesn't have to be, uh, it's all over the world and it's right. all the, you know, but, uh, so I have a little bit of that feeling. I mean, the other issue I'm having is that I did, I underestimated the extent to which even more people would come out of the woodwork from Paul LaRue's company. So I have people now just coming at me all the time about whether they were in the book or they, they want to be in the book, or you should write about book about me, or you miss, you didn't write about this crazy thing that happened in the Congo. And so I'm having a way a lot of conversations about a book that's already out uh, with people who are either mad about it or, or they love it or whatever the case. So I'm trying to sort of slowly extract myself from Paul, the Paul LaRue world so that I can spend some energy on something new. But uh, I have not yet been successful. It made me immediately go, oh, what's the season pass to the mastermind? Because they like, signed me up for the DLC model. Because if there's going to be <laughs> another new chapter, great. But I get it. You're like, I, I did that. I told that. Now I'm ready to just homer into the hedge and see what the next one is. Yeah, that's how I feel. But some of them have amazing, they do have amazing stories and they're, I couldn't get everything. So <sighs> there are people that I've, I'm sort of fascinated to talk to for a variety of reasons. And for anybody who thinks that they, okay, yeah, now I know what the book is about. We didn't even get to the, the man, there was a man in an ocean being shot at with an automatic weapon. That might have been to scare him into thinking one of those bullets was going into him, or it might have been to scare the sharks away. But either way, that's some crazy shit. We yeah, didn't even. That, get, and, and you, you did not get to that scene. And you might feel like we just got to it, but we really didn't. There's a whole lot more there. The book is The Mastermind Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. Uh, it is out now. There's the audiobook. I ask this of, of a lot of creators that come on because I want to optimize uh, the level of support that someone could give you, Evan. What is the best way for someone? to get this? Like what is most beneficial to you? I know it's like, hey, if you like the audiobook, go listen to it. If you want to read, go read it. But as a creator now, does it, does it matter? Is it all the same to you in the end? 
it's really all the same to me. It's your it's it's your preferred retailer. I mean, except like torrenting, I guess. Uh, don't torrent it. <laughs> right. Or if you're that type of person, I'm not going to stop you by saying it anyway. So uh, you know, do what you have to do. I mean, I did read the audiobook, so and th- and spent a lot of hours on that. So I think that's probably my favorite, just because I got to kind of inflect it in the way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, however people want to consume it, I will not complain. What what is the audio? Just out of curiosity, what is the audiobook process like? Is that are you in the tiniest of booths for hours and hours on end and barely? It's amazing. Little Dixie cup of water to keep you refreshed, but then you go. Yes, and there's a there's a director. There's someone who's sitting outside that's you know in your ear who says you know you messed up this word, you messed up this word, and you do it again, and you just get into this flow. And the number one thing that happens is stomach noise. They'll just you'll just be reading and they'll say stomach noise, and then you have to stop. <laughs> Because it's all very sensitive. It's a very sensitive microphone. So I was like watching what I was eating for that period of four days. And um, but it was it was actually really fun because to get to read the whole book aloud, you know, uh, it just kind of felt like, oh, this is the thing that I created. Actually, I'm like putting it out in the world this different way. It's it's wonderful. I I, I enjoyed the audio book, as I said, and I I read a whole bunch of it as well. It is a a fantastic book. You did an incredible job with it. While I have you, you, um, can I also ask you about the the Vanished uh, experiment that you did? Of course. Because I love, you know, you had mentioned right before we went live that you couldn't remember if you were a guest on Attack of the Show or not. And I feel like we covered Vanished because it's exactly the kind of thing that I would have covered and would have loved yeah. to have covered. But I, I, I don't recall if we had you on for an interview segment or not, but I definitely remember covering Vanish. But for, for those who don't know, you went off the grid basically for a month and Wired offered a bounty on your head. Yeah, it was 10 years ago this year. Um, so my what I was trying to figure out, it was sort of like I had been doing a lot of stories about fake deaths and I wanted to figure out what would it feel like to do some sort of uh, reinvention where you sort of disappeared out of your own life and reemerged in a new life. And then how difficult would it be for people to catch you? So yeah, they set up this contest and anyone could catch me and they could win $5,000. And so I was trying to stay, you know, on the lamb basically for a month under this new identity. And I got caught, I think it was 23 days in. Did you think you were getting away with it? At the time I did. Yeah. I was, in fact, that's that was kind of my downfall in, in some ways was, I, I let I let down my guard because I was I was on the last last leg of the thing, and I just felt like ah, I'm gonna right. make it. I had all kinds of plans for how I was gonna reveal myself at the very end, and I just <laughs> I just slipped up. I, I mean, that. it's funny. Uh, the visions of I, uh, I just love the vision of you with the chest into the ticker tape, being like, "Let's go, pop the confetti! <laughs> I did it, you fuckers! I could disappear if I want." Yeah, that was really it. That was that was gonna be me. Um, but I mean, it's there's like there's an irony there because you know I've written a lot about criminals before and since then, and there's always this thing where you're sort of like, how did they slip up and get caught? Even Paul Larue, like, how right. did he fall for the sting operation? And so I have you know a very minor insight into how that feels to try to maintain your paranoia over even a couple of weeks. It it's it becomes very difficult. Like you can't live that way. So right. you go, this uh, is exhausting. I'll, I'll relax just a, a slight percentage and you relax that much and go, oh sweet. I could probably relax a little bit more. It doesn't seem like what how far yeah. did you go for those who don't know the story? Like how far out of your way did you go knowing what you know about technology and crime? What did you do to 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 set the table so that you could feast on being off the grid and not get caught? Oh I did everything. I mean I I 
I set up all kinds of sort of uh, fake alleyways for people to go down who were looking for me, you know, uh, fake plane tickets and things like that. I sold my car. I drove to Las Vegas. I sold my car. Then I was on buses. I hitchhiked basically with a band across most of the United States. And then I, I was living in New Orleans under a fake name with an apartment rented under assumed identity. And I had also changed my appearance in a variety of ways. I had shaved my head, but just the top sort of into like, you know, male pattern baldness, essentially. Um, And yeah, I was like, I was deep, deep in it. And I was all kinds of technical infrastructure that I set up. I had an office that had laptops in it that I could tunnel into those laptops and use them to access the internet. So yeah, I had spent months and months preparing for it. Uh, So how did you actually get caught in the end? Was it from an errant tweet? Because I know you were communicating with people through the process. Yeah, it was from it was uh, it was partly because I stopped using my system to conceal my IP address, my my your kind of location on the mm-hmm. internet. Partly because it was so slow, like I was using these laptops that were in office, and everything was just so slow. And I just thought, ah. and so a guy set up a, a kind of trap for me on Facebook where he he created a page that was like find Evan Ratliff, but the goal was to get me. So he was checking people who would show up. And of course I would show up to see like, right. what kind of, what's the progress? What the, How do I throw them off my scent? Yeah. So that, so he trapped my IP address in that. Uh, and then uh, he, this guy, Jeff Reefman, and he, then he kind of got people on the ground in New Orleans to go out and look for me, uh, including the proprietors of this pizza place, this gluten-free pizza place. Cause I have celiac disease and I have to eat a gluten-free diet. And so he kind of like, triangulated that I would end up there. And uh, yeah, that's that's how I got caught. Close my mind. I love it. I love it. Well, it was yeah. it, I, I, that wow, that must be it. I know I know we would have covered that because that's that's right in my fucking wheelhouse. I love it. I love it. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you got got. But I also love the tale of how you got it. Who knew your dietary restrictions and a lack of 5G would lead you to getting busted? Yeah. And I, at the time I was so upset about it. And then like four weeks later, I realized this is a way better story. You know, I was so caught up in it. I just wanted to win. Right. But it would have been a lame story if I had won. Like that would not, the story of them catching me was actually way more interesting than just the story of me running around trying to hide. 100%. So now I, I, I know you said that you, there are multiple irons and you sort of have at a low level stories going right now. Are you, uh, can you talk about anything that you have going on right now? Are you just playing Apex Legends a lot? Like what is your, what is your day to day now? <laughs> um, I'm basically like researching ideas all day that are not worth talking about at the stage at which I currently understand them, I would say. I would, they would not be interesting or like I understand them at the level that they have existed in the press, you know. So I generally don't like to talk about things, at least until they've moved on to a, a solid state of existing as an assignment or a podcast or whatever I'm going to do with them. Um, I mean, I will say I'm looking into doing a narrative podcast that's with one of the ideas. Oh, awesome. Okay. And is there, has there been a, a piece of work recently that's inspired you? Is there a, a that already exists as a, as a book, as a podcast, as a mini series, as a, a, a blog post that we have to hit? Is there something that you can put into our bookmark folder for today? Oh man. I mean, if people haven't listened to S town, uh, oh, that was put out by serial. I mean, most people have a gazillion people listen to that. So I'd be surprised to find someone who's not heard of it. So I'm not, I mean, I'd be putting something new in there, but I am, I remain obsessed with how good that, that story was, how well written that thing was and just how incredible it is. So 
I, I've listened to it. I, I don't know how many times I've listened to that thing, but uh, it's amazing. I love it. Well, Evan, the, the mastermind is amazing as well. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to sit down and chat about it. It was such a, a wonderful tale. And again, we could have we could chat for seven hours about it, and there's still plenty of pages that need to be turned with all the details. I, as much as I know you're separating yourself from that story, which you told as people come out of the woodworks, Consider the, the 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 DLC model, the season pass, the whatever, because I would certainly not mind uh, an in-depth update because I'm sure you're getting a handful of stories that are even making your head spin in the wake of everything that you've already experienced and heard. Yeah, maybe I'll write something for the completists. Please, please do. Evan, thank you again for sitting down. I appreciate it. The hey, book thank is you for having me. The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. You can basically put that into any internet machine, find it. It doesn't matter how you get it. Just don't click the magnet link, you fucking pirates. Spend a couple dollars. Support good journalism. Evan, thank you again, sir. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, take care. Thank you all for tuning in. I will see you tomorrow, if not Friday. Kisses, hugs, and belly rubs. Goodbye, everyone.